Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Given its 50% share of global premiums, it's probably fair enough that we spend an awful lot of our time talking about the US market. But sometimes it's refreshing to broaden our horizons a little. So today we're going to be looking at Australia. And luckily we're going to be guided by a real expert and pioneer in this territory. This is someone with an enviable track record and also a very strong grounding in global wholesale insurance. Simon Lightbody has had a very successful 30-plus year career, which started as a broker and then an underwriter in London, but really took off 18 years ago when he helped found Miramar, an Australian MGA backed by the growing Steadfast Distribution Group. Steadfast went public 10 years ago, and these days Miramar writes well over a billion in annual premiums. After a recent career break, Simon is back with Rodian, a brand new MGA incubator set up with support from Amwins. When someone of Simon's experience and success starts something new, it's always exciting and a chance to find out what opportunity it is they've seen or what gap in the market they've spotted. So what follows is an excellent tour around Simon's big idea and the opportunities available in the Australian and wider Asia-Pacific markets. Simon's someone I knew back in my own broking days in the 1990s, and I think some of that familiarity comes through in this really friendly and relaxed meeting. But most importantly, this is an encounter with a highly successful entrepreneur who knows the MGA business from top to bottom. And because of that, I think this episode has an awful lot to offer any listener, whether they have a particular interest in the Australian market or not. Enjoy the podcast. Simon, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much, Mark. Well, you and I have got a bit of history. But that was a very long time ago. We were both brokers to start with, and then you became an underwriter. Then you went to Australia. Tell the listeners a bit about yourself and your career to date, and then how you've come up with the idea for Rodian. Okay, I'll try and do that as briefly. Yeah, yeah, because it's a long time. We could end up doing a whole program on this. Yes, we are of a generation that that goes back. So my journey in insurance started at the very venerable CT Bowering back in 1990, as it still was then, just it had been acquired by Marsh. And I, in fact, started my journey with Marsh on the finance auditing side of that business, but moved on to broking fairly quickly to work in the international liability division of CT Bowering which at the time was run by a guy called John Marsh, Nick Baker, Martin South, Paul Close, all people have gone on to have outstanding careers. Martin South, you know, yeah, obviously a head of Marsh, Nick at Provitas, John stayed at Marsh for many, many years, as did Paul. So I had a great grounding and spent quite a few years learning my craft, which is where we met each other, queuing in underwriting, queuing rooms and in Lloyd's, doing what we used to do in those days, which was spend time talking to each other and watching each other broke and form relationships, which I think is a function of the market, which probably doesn't exist to quite the same degree these yeah, days. Yeah, I think I learned quite a lot from you because you're quite chatty. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think we realised yeah. that we didn't have many things that were directly competing with each other, so we could sort of no, learn a bit no, while you're waiting. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I never played the game of doing that and holding my slipcase close to my chest because it was business that was coming into Bowering's Marsh. So no one's going to take it away from you just because they hear you talking about it over your shoulder in a Lloyd's queue. But I then went on to the underwriting side, still majoring in international liability, several companies without sounding like a, a millennial who moved around a lot, but Chioda, Eagle Star Re, and then into Lloyd's at Denim Syndicate, which is where I became part of Excel. Because I suppose yeah, between Ace and Excel, they bought half of Lloyd's around that time. Exactly. At that time, there was a lot of that activity going on. We're a Denim Syndicate merged with Brockbank, 
And I was approached by a guy called Craig Langham, who was asked to head up Excel in Australia. I went over in 2002 to come over to Australia and help him build the Excel proposition in Australia by looking after the international liability side. I went to Sydney thinking three, maybe four years would be a, a good experience, having broked and underwritten Australian business um, for quite a few years, most of my career in insurance. And things always surprise you when you're thinking that you're about to move on. And we were in the throes of discussing where we'd be next. When I was approached by a guy called Anthony Jodrell to consider starting an underwriting agency, he was good friends with a gentleman called Robert Kelly, who was running a broker distribution cluster group called Steadfast at the time, and they wanted to invest in an underwriting agency. We were very fortunate to be sponsored by Mark Lawrence and Ed Lyons uh, at Chaucer and Heritage, respectively. And Heritage is what I suppose became Argo, didn't it? In, um, yeah, that was, exactly. It was bought yeah. by Argo. Yeah, and, so and Heritage now, Argo. would now be and, Westfield, I suppose, yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then Mark and his team went over to Chaucer, yeah. which is where Ed was, obviously, and under the leadership of John Fowl at the time, who was another acquaintance of ours from those days. So Miramar was an underwriting agency backed by Lloyds. We had a little bit of domestic capacity. We were writing what's called SME, commercial business, property liability. And, and, suppose, and that was a hell of a time to be starting an agency. And that was in that almost sort of post-apocalyptic time for the Australian market with HIH's collapse, which was, you yeah. know, I'm sure as a journalist, we were all writing about that at the time. In fact, I was just coming into that post HIH world uh, where APRA was coming into being and lots of things were happening. But it must have been a hell of a time. You had a massive tailwind, one presumed. Yeah, you had so, capacity, so like, you could run business. Yeah, liability, certainly along the liability side, to a degree property, but liability, when I first went to Australia with Excel in 2002, the liability market as a result of the tort reforms and the, the changes in legislation in Australia was super, super hard. It's I think it's the hardest liability environment I've ever underwritten, broked in, and capacity was very short. So we, as Excel at the time, we had a good time being able to charge technical rate and write a profitable book for a few years. And that tailwind came into Miramar as we started in 2005. And there was competition. Obviously, there were underwriting agencies around at the time. They were starting to be seen as an alternate vehicle to domestic insurers, but they hadn't quite established the credibility that they certainly do now. And one of the reasons we accepted Steadfast's offer to take an equity share of Miramar was because they were a growing cluster group of brokers, a network of brokers, and they were forming a ready-made distribution arm for us. So to forego equity in our business with a chance to be associated with a growing cluster group of brokers was kind of seen as a sensible thing. And it gave us that extra lift in what was a relatively buoyant market at the time as well. So, so you um, rode that tiger all the way to becoming a public company of Steadfast. Yeah, so it was interesting, you know, kind of, what was it John Lennon said, life goes on when you're busy making other plans. And we were happily going on the journey of, of Miramar and we'd, we'd got to a, a pretty impressive size in terms of number of people and GWP, etc. Presumably being Steadfast, there were acquisitions involved, I presume. As Miramar, we didn't buy any books, we just grew organically. But when Steadfast decided to list, and the IPO was in 2013, we sold Miramar into the IPO, pre-IPO. Then after post-IPO, I sat down with Robert and he explained his vision of what he saw on the underwriting side within Steadfast. It was very much a range of products that would help brokers within the Steadfast group and brokers from outside Steadfast access markets that they may not have necessarily been aware of or, or have available to them. 
we set off on a preordained strategy to buy good agencies with good brands, strong backing from the capacity providers with a good reputation in the broker market. And that's what we did for 10 years until I decided to hand the reins over and let somebody else carry on the good work that we started. So then you're forming this idea for Rodian. So where did that come from? And also, where did you get the backing from? Did you back yourself? You had all these lovely steadfast shares that you could cash in? <laughs> you see the price of property in Sydney now. <laughs> <laughs> did you just um, buy one flat in 2002? So Rodian, so that was an interesting one. So I left Steadfast with Robert's blessing. We'd had an amazing journey. We'd been together 18 years, really, Miramar and Steadfast. And it was time to take a break for me. I'd never had a break. I'd never done a gardening leave. And I have lots of colleagues in London and friends and colleagues who have done that wonderful disappearing for six months or a year. And I'd never done it and I needed a break. I suppose Australia is quite a good place to do that, presumably to go around the country. Exactly, exactly. And um, we were coming out of COVID. I knew I wasn't finished. I spent some time thinking about what do I know? What am I good at? What am I known for? Where can I generate some sort of credibility? It's within the world of underwriting agencies and they have, by the, the good performance of a lot of strong agencies, particularly in Australia, they've become integral into the network of commercial product distribution in Australia. And I thought, well, agencies are going to grow, they're going to be strong, but all the good ones, the ones that have been around for quite a long time, the Miramars, the various other ones that we acquired and others acquired, they're all owned by corporate entities. And if you think about the world as it was 20 years ago when I started Miramar, and there's lots of strong individuals who know their products, who know how to underwrite and distribute product, they're in underwriting agencies or insurance companies, and they're thinking, I really want to start my own agency. I know how to do this. I know how to underwrite. but..." How do I do that? Everything's owned by all the big corporates and the barriers to entry have risen, whether it's the cost of tech, you know, the regulation and compliance. compliance. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Those frameworks are rightly so much stronger than they ever were 20 years ago when it was relatively straightforward to get an AFS license, to get a Lloyd's cover holder license, to get a little bit of tech off the shelf rent a wee office and off you go. These days that doesn't happen. It costs a lot of money and it takes a long time. And if you're a youngish entrepreneur sitting in your corporate office job, you're going to have to back yourself for quite a long time before you can earn any money. If you can find the capacity, if you can find the backing and do all that sort of stuff. At Steadfast, we'd built a, a group structure post IPO that was designed to support the underwriting agencies that we bought. A lot of them had structure, but the leaders, the entrepreneurs that have built these agencies were finding it increasingly difficult to look at the market and face and be innovative and get out to their brokers because they were dealing with compliance, finance, HR, marketing, tech developments. And at Steadfast, we felt that it was more accretive to build a structure that would enable them to let us take care of a lot of that while they yeah. do what they're very good at, which is building their business. With Rhodium, we're not reinventing the wheel per se, but we are seeing that the market has come to a point where there isn't that structure for startups effectively. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, 
that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com, and I'll do everything I can to get you started. So it's almost, you're trying to imagine an entity that would have helped your younger self, someone a bit like you, you can identify those people and then you can pitch to them and say, right, here's something I can take away all these problems for you, obviously, in terms of them. And in effect, that's a little bit what Steadfast did for us back in 2005, having that association. Yeah. It wasn't quite the same. We didn't quite have the same, but we did have the ability to call on some of the services within Steadfast, certainly had the support of distribution and the ability to perhaps talk to capacity that we wouldn't have done otherwise as a couple of guys sitting in an office in Manly. So, you know, the kernel of the idea is if, if you build that structure, it allows them to be able to step forward and say, I can see Rodian is going to be the engine behind my agency. The tagline powered by Rodian is very much... Um, so, yeah, an incubator. Yeah, an incubator. Yeah, I was going to ask you this later, but you've mentioned it already. So it's right to say that Australia's got the similar dynamic in the, that change in distribution that we've seen, where the MGA has become far more prominent and mm. wholesale commercial insurance channels eating more into what would previously would have been retail channels. It's been part of that same wave. So we'd be right to say that that has been a, a global wave then, you know, like what we've seen in, in the US and it's still happening. That's happening in Australia as well. And, and obviously, presumably with this, you're going to be picking up on that wave. Yeah, exactly. I think what we've seen over 20, 25 years in Australia, probably a little bit longer in the US in terms of the preeminence of MGAs, but what we've seen is MGAs become better at distributing product to brokers and the commercial market, better at service. And it's coincided with insurance companies looking at their cost base, looking at the people they have within their organizations that they use to distribute product and their costs of staffing and their costs of putting capital into their own products. And I think it's fair to say that the rise of MGAs in terms of their service capabilities and their expertise has coincided with insurance companies going, you know what, it's actually cheaper for us just to be capacity providers. We give the capacity to the agencies, they carry the cost of the staff, the distribution of the product, the technology, they carry all those. Yeah, sure, they get a commission for that, of course, but it's a model if the insurance companies are smart and structured properly can work for them and does. And presumably with the MGAs giving them far more tailored product, I suppose, and that's ultimately it. I remember having Steve DiCarlo on at a conference about six or seven years ago, and he showed some of the most complex structures. And of course, you'd say, well, we're adding these new links to the chain. And he said, and he showed us the most complex structure that he could imagine of, I don't know, a retail broker, a wholesale broker going to an MGA, then firing something else out somewhere else, and then going via reinsurance and something up. And it was seven people in the chain. And he said, but why does that happen? And he asked the audience and no, everyone's scratching their heads. And he said, well, it happens because it's better. Yeah. Because it's better that way, because this is for a very specific product that someone needs. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, whether we share the commission between seven people or six people or one people, who cares? The point is yeah. the client gets a better service and they're getting something that they really need. And it's probably come from halfway around the world at that point. But it was a really good point. It was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. I was thinking, oh, of course, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so has that really been the success of the MGA? Is that it's giving a far more specific product, specific service in a specific place where it's actually needed. Yeah, um, absolutely. Rather than yeah. being a bit more generalist with the large multinationals giving products that weren't specifically tailored for anybody in particular. 
And I think the rise of the regulatory authorities down here, whether it be APRA or ASIC, in terms of their requirements, the impost on insurance companies or licensed insurers is huge. Not that that goes away if they give an underwriting agency capacity because they still have to run it, it's still their license providing capacity. But their internal costs are ameliorated because a lot of that distribution effort is done in the agencies. We've had instances when I was at Steadfast where insurance companies would have products that they had in market themselves and they say, you know what, we're just not doing this very well. We've got a great product, but we don't know how to distribute. We're not very good at service. Um, we probably could be better at underwriting it in the first place. Can you do it? And we say, yeah, sure. Let's rebrand it. It's still a XYZ insurance company product, but it's running through Miramar or whoever, and we'll just do a better job. And you won't have 30 people in head office doing that job, not particularly well. So it is better, to Steve DiCarlo's point, because it's better. And it, <laughs> it wouldn't I like work. That. I'm, I'm going to borrow that, actually. <laughs> so... That relationship with Amwins, how does that work? You've got a relationship with Amwins, presumably we, we is it, is it, uh, partly equity or they're going to be sourcing capacity for you, that kind of thing? Yeah, because you asked that question earlier in terms of where the backing came from. So the three founders, myself, Tessa Chernside and Peter Tackles, have put our own money into it. However, the majority of the investment to start Rodian has come from Amwins. And the Amwins connection, it's interesting how these things happen. I bumped into a, an ex-colleague of mine, a guy called John Andrews, who's at Amwins, and I bumped into him last April when I was back in the UK in my break freight phase, and they just asked me what I was doing, and I said, oh, yeah, I've got a few ideas. I said, well, Amwins are starting to look at their international strategy in terms of ex-USA London business generating areas, and would you mind having a chat to some of our guys and seeing if there's an alignment? Australia is one of the territories that's been circled. So I said, sure. We ended up having two or three conversations over Zoom, which culminated in Peter and I, one of my co-founders, going up to Charlotte and sitting down with Amwin and really talking about our ideology, our cultural desires, how we wanted Rodian to be presented to market, what our philosophies were in terms of life and business. And I think we spent about 90% of the time on getting to know each other from a cultural fit point of view and 10% and on P&L numbers. Amwins are, are clearly a significantly successful business. They've got a strong MGA pedigree, Absolutely. which is super important to us to be working with somebody who understands our business. I think we are uh, probably a relatively inexpensive entree into Australia in terms of a space they understand being MGAs. And we're a little bit different. We're, you know, that incubator model. We're not looking to expose the capital, the balance sheet by buying agencies, which can be hugely expensive, a little bit of a lottery as to whether it works or not, and you get the economy to scale. The actual quality of the earnings that you're buying is difficult to ascertain until you actually own it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it can be. It can be. You can get lucky, but I would argue Ausbrokers and Steadfast and maybe Penn Underwriting have led that charge over the last 10 years. Presumably there's not that much left to buy now anyway. Well, there's a lot of strong, smaller independents. And maybe they will need a pathway at some point to, you know, kind of step out and realize the asset they've built. And, and undoubtedly, there'll be an element of that. But you're right. I think the greatest challenge and the, the greatest upside is to start an agency, incubate it and grow it. And what about the structure there? They would have a significant minority interest and you'd be the significant majority interest. So Amwins have taken a significant minority interest. And that's what you would do in your incubees. How, how do you say, yes, yeah, somebody well, who's yeah, being yeah, incubated? Yeah. 
Yeah, the startups. So actually, we'll take a slightly different position. We will take a majority interest in the startups. And that will be no less than 51% being the majority. It could be more than that. It just depends on the particular product and the individual that's coming to us. But we will take a majority share. Right. And what's the intention there? Because obviously, incubation, we're looking at a bird incubating an egg, I suppose, is where this is coming from. In the end, the fledgling hatches and then eventually, you know, it flies off from the nest and starts its own nest. Is that your intention or is you want them to stay? Presumably you want to stay, you want to get a massive nest. I think we wanted them to stay. You know, the analogy of the kids that never leave home, they get everything they need from home and they're able to keep growing. They don't feel stifled. Yeah. Yeah. So if Rodian does what it says well, the agencies will grow. The entrepreneurs that started with us, you know, the the venture collectively tagline that we have within Rodian is, is very important. We grow together and we provide the services that help them grow. It is their brand. And this is an important aspect that we decided very early. There's two metrics that I saw at Steadfast that helped really grow agencies and we bought some agencies that were relatively small and grew them to be relatively big because we sold equity into the senior management so they felt that they had skin in the game and we kept the brand so when we buy a brand we're not interested in homogenizing it and calling it steadfast because you lose all the value that you bought that was created by the business in the first place so we became a house of brands the broker's understand it because it's an established brand it does what it says on the can invariably so we're very much in saying to the startup entrepreneurs we will create a brand it is your brand it is your PL. you are equity partners on this journey and we'd like at this stage for it to stay that way i think it's probably fair to say mark do they go off and do something themselves who knows that's a 10-year window question which I just don't have an answer for, but it's not the intention. And there'll usually be an obvious answer to those things. Sometimes some things do have to go. They just go, don't they? And there's not much you can yeah, do about no, it. And, well, and you, never know. you get the benefit of owning a majority in them anyway. So that's not, not a bad ending, is it? Yeah, no, we build something and then someone knocks on the door and offers you a, a price. Everybody looks at each other and says, well, yep, yeah, okay, let's take it. But yeah. that's not the intention. No, I think if we do our job properly, then I don't think people would want to leave. So you are, again, going to be a house of brands. And I suppose we won't really know the Rodian brand. That's going to be the corporate holding company level. Brokers aren't going to be transacting with Rodian, one presumes. No, no. So the brands that will be seen in the market by the brokers and by the capacity providers, whether it be London or domestically, will be the individual brands that we create within those product streams. But I think, yeah, you're right. Rodian won't be transacting, but it will be very much a structure that the capacity providers are aware of. So when we go into the London market... It will be with agency XYZ and the fact that it's got Rhodium behind it. We hope and we fully intend to be a very persuasive element in getting support from capacity. And you can get that leverage, particularly for when something's untried or a bit small. The fact that it's now part of this certain amount of heft that you can bring when you're building that, that that might help with the capacity provision at the beginning. Yeah, and it will be the excellence of the people that we have in Rhodium and the, the systems, whether it be the tech, whether it be the compliance system whether it be the actuarial people that we bring in, the finance structure and how well we report and send board rows electronically in these companies. So that all of that is actually more important almost, certainly if you go into Lloyd's these days, if you don't have that structure underneath, the compliance, the finance, the actuarial, the data capabilities, then you won't get capacity. It doesn't matter how good an underwriter you are and how well you're pricing stuff and how well you think you're positioned in the market. If you can't 
comfort the syndicates that they are aligning themselves with a strong cultural entity like on compliance, data, actuarial. You need to be good and prove that you're good at the same time these days. Absolutely. We learned at Steadfast as a market change and Lloyd's went through its transformation under Hancock when he was around with Lloyd's and developed by John Neal that the whole integrity of Lloyd's has improved significantly over the last five or six years. But it has been a hard journey for cover holders to go on to because it's just a very different set of criteria that you're being judged against and a better one, to be fair. But you can't just wander into Lloyd's and grab See your pass. friends and just get your mates to help you out anymore. That no, can't, that's, they can't that's, help you anymore. <laughs> no, no, there's, sadly, those days are over now. It's, uh, <laughs> you have to stand up and, and show that you, you have credibility, which is good because that's the way it should be. Absolutely right. And one last thing on, on the way you're structured. So certainly from reading your website, it looks like you're looking to fill the whole kaleidoscope, the whole spectrum of underwriting. Obviously, you know, different classes, different specialities, specialisms. Yep. One presumes that you're not seeking to have things overlap. You sort of say, well, once I've got my property MGA away, that's me done in property. Great. I'm going to really bat that. And then I've got my liability one. I've got my professional indemnity one. I've got my whatever, cyber one. Is that the sort of philosophy that you're looking for? You don't want to be replicating things. No, again, lessons learned from past experience. If you want to present a brand in market and present the clear direction of that brand to the brokers, and we're only dealing with licensed brokers who are not into the retail direct to consumer space, then it behoves us to make it clear there's a one path to market. So if we have a, a cyber agency and, and then another opportunity comes to start another cyber agency, then no, I wouldn't do that because you back what you've got, you present that to market and you don't get people asking, well, who do I support? Which one do we go to? It causes confusion. Capacity providers probably wouldn't like it because one would say, well, I support that agency, but you started another one. So how does that work against me? So the rationale that we've always deployed is keep it clear and minimize any overlap. You're sitting there, I know it was a 90% you were talking about culture up in Charlotte. And in 10% was numbers, but on numbers, you know, what's a good five-year plan GWP target? And are you about to say it depends because it depends on who walks through the door and who you're able to convince to come and join you, of course. But, you know, when you have a rough idea, what would be a good number? As anybody will know, when they're building a business plan, you have to develop a forward thinking at least five years, five or six years. And we certainly did that and have presented that to Amwins in order for us to generate a number that we need in order to fund and present Rody into the market. I think it's fair to say we would be looking across eight or nine different products in the next five years, and we'd be looking in excess of $100 million Australian. Yeah, what's the Aussie dollar to the US dollar at the moment? 0.7, something like that. 70 million US dollars. Yeah, like so, so about 70, 75 million US dollars. It could be more, could be less, who knows. If this market continues where we've got strong pricing, um, we don't get a particularly soft cycle in there, which I don't think we will particularly yet. I think that's achievable. And if you think about underwriting agencies take about three years to hit their straps in terms of you know the cash flow and various break-even metrics within a P&L, then I think within five years, those first ones will be reaching a, a strong maturity and the newer ones will still be on their journey. So those sort of numbers feel not uncomfortable to achieve. And how is the Aussie market? Good. Is it kind of correlating with everything else we're seeing in the global commercial insurance space and a bit hard? 
Yeah, a bit hard, absolutely. And, and in some areas, as a result of some of the weather patterns we have down here in Australia. The only thing you haven't had is a plague of frogs, or you probably have had a plague of frogs without, without that hasn't made the front page news. But certainly, when you look at Australia from the outside, of course, it's such an enormous amount of land that's bound to get hit by some kind of catastrophe every other day. And it certainly appears to be so, but presumably they don't always translate into insurance catastrophes because there's not always anything there. No, but the bushfires of a few years ago and then the bloods of the last 18 months or so, unfortunately, for those affected, have hit areas of population and commercial and residential. So going back to pricing, it is a bit hard in some areas. It's very hard, uh, depending on how far up you go into weather patterns up in the north of Australia. But it's strong pricing at the moment. The corrective pricing started maybe five or six years ago on the property side has continued through the casualty classes the the pid you know general liability and they're still ongoing because we aren't still seeing those years of correctiveness are still developing and maturing so i don't think anybody would put their hand on their heart and say we're at technical we're there we've done we it can't get the actuary to say that we're ready yet they're still getting adverse development in different places. Exactly. Exactly. And some of the tales on some of those casualty classes, with, you know, with some of the PI classes are eight or nine years, and some of them are still developing. So I think we are still set for a strong, hard market for, I would say, three or four years. We're seeing a little bit of capacity coming back in and starting to put its wee flag up down here and say, we think Australia is a lot better than it was five years ago, which it certainly is. But we don't see a flood. We're not seeing a charge of capacity coming over the hill, which is good. We don't particularly want it to be that case because we want books to be profitable. It's no good to anybody if we write a lot of GWP and it's not profitable because, particularly for underwriting agencies, if you don't have capacity, you don't have an agency. So we know the focus, particularly in Lloyd's and the big domestics, is all about alignment. If we as an agency are making profit through our P&L, then the capacity providers have to make profit through theirs as well. So presumably some of the biggest unmet demand is going to be in classic property. Australia as a territory has specialised in some of the secondary perils which have really come to the fore to reinsure us. So I presume anything that has been anywhere near a wildfire must be extremely hard and very difficult to source new capacity. And you're going to have to be smart in sourcing that capacity, but you're going to have to come with some new angle or at least some data or some broking points you're going to have to have, aren't you, Simon? Yeah, you're going to have to have metrics around risk management, it's the same as, you know, kind of flood, bushfire around those locations and the mitigation. There's a lot of bushfire mitigation going on in Australia, really forced to because of the ferocity of the fires in the last few years. Uh, presumably also a lot of learning has happened. That, yes, yeah. Some holdings did okay and some didn't and some because they had pools of water here and there were able to let the fire go around them. All, all sorts of things have happened, haven't they? But um, presumably you can learn a lot as an underwriter out of that. There's certainly proven ways of mitigating the damage done, and both whether it be through flood or rainfall, storm or, or bushfire. So there are smart ways of measuring that, uh, risk management tools, metrics, data that suggest that if you apply those, then these are areas that can be underwritten. A price can be put on them. The dynamic is always whether the consumer will pay that price or not. I suppose one of the advantages you've got with a blank piece of paper and obviously an empty server, presuming now it's somewhere on a cloud uh, somewhere, you don't have any legacy systems, so presumably you can just go straight for all the best quality data ingestion systems and things. Presumably now you can really go for that. Am I guessing that you're going to want that to be one of your USPs, I presume? Absolutely. 
when we sat down and started looking at Rodian and what it was going to represent, we actually did think for a time was, is it going to be a tech company that works in insurance or is it going to be an insurance entity that, that has good tech? And because of the vagaries of everything needing to be very good, whether it be tech, finance, HR, brand, marketing, compliance. But we're an insurance entity that has very good tech. And we also have a CTO who has an insurance background in his early years and then went off and built a business, sold it and came back in to work with us. And it's very much about building system integrity and being able to patch in through APIs into all these ancillary services that make you a compelling prospect for a capacity provider. So yeah, tech is everything these days, Mark. It, whether it's how you collect and present the data to insurers or how you then collect and present the data back to brokers so that they understand what their book looks like. And then how you look at the data yourselves in terms of how you price things. Just what you mentioned, certainly in your literature, you talk about transparent data sharing philosophy was four words that yeah. came out there. You want to be really transparent with your own paper backers and also with your brokers. And presumably that would go all the way back to the original client. And presumably you want that original client to give you more data than they would have done otherwise. Absolutely. The insurers have an enormous amount of data, but they're very silo driven in their mentality in terms of sharing data and sharing it with others. They give wonderful graphs and say, look, this is what it looks like, but they don't actually share real data. They package it and present it as a slide in a pie chart. Presumably a very cherry picked one. <laughs> exactly. It's a presented one, but there is definitely space for somebody to be saying, this is real data, this is our data, you can have access into our separate unit, which is our data, which is live, which shows you real time, what risks we're writing with you. And then there are ways of patching the clients into claim systems so that the clients, the end consumer can see where his claim is, because at the end of the day, that's all they'll ever care about is if they have a claim. Where is it in the food chain? So there's a lot of ambition around that. And then we have this wonderful Horizon 2 vision of how we present ourselves to the wider community, insurance community, about what we do with data, how we become truly a cooperative in terms of sharing community data, whether it be around weather events or various other aspects of risk and risk management. We know other industries do it. We're working with some very smart people who work with scientists, weather scientists, and, and, and these communities share data so that they have a central site where people can put papers in, take data out, share it. And insurance doesn't do that. It's all there, but nobody's able to pull it together and do that. So we have a Horizon 2 ambition to go on that journey, but that'll be for another podcast. And what about automation? Presumably anything you can automate you will automate, you know, very small homogenous types of risks. One presumes you want to just get them out the door as quick as possible at the right rate. Yeah, low touch. If you've got high volume, low premium insurance policies, then you don't necessarily want to be touching it from an underwriting point of view. You don't need a field of underwriters who are all busy away underwriting BizPack business, which is $1,000 premium. You can automate that and automating it gives you a wider data set you can look and play around with it to your heart's content. So yeah, there will be a lot of emphasis on any product we take to market being as automated as possible. Obviously, the bigger end of the market, that's where underwriting is key still. One other thing I wanted to ask you, obviously, in a time of difficulty sourcing capacity, sometimes MGAs, and certainly the last four or five years in this hardening phase, have gone to source some of their own capacity. Sometimes that's by necessity, sometimes by design, the necessity to show that they've got skin in the game. You know, there are many different structures. We've got syndicates in boxes. We've got captive reinsurers in Bermuda and other places. Would you want to do that or would you do it if you had to? 
Or is it too much of a distraction again to be, you know, it's one thing being an MGA and being the best MGA you can be, but then suddenly being an MGA is also an insurance company. That's quite hard work. We used to get asked that question at Steadfast as we grew and became significant. We had $1.5 billion or have $1.5 billion worth of GWP. And people would say, well, so when are you going to become an insurance company? And Robert would always say, never going to be an insurance company. No plans. No, I, I think that blurs the lines, doesn't it, between MGA, specialist distributor of products. I suppose your paper provider at some point is going to say, well, oh, wow. So, you know, they're taking 10% of everything. At what point they're suddenly just going to tell me at the next room, it's actually, sorry, it's 100% and now we've got Munich Rebehind us or something. Yeah, exactly. People who have been going a lot longer than obviously Rodian, and we look at Jewel, for instance, who have done that. And I think when you get to a certain size and you've been in the market as long as someone like Jewel has, then I think it probably does make sense to look at those alternative structures. But that's a long way down the road. The only advantage will be that multi-year nature of it. Of course, you you don't create an insurance company lightly. It must be a multi-year thing you wouldn't do for one year. No, I think I'll rely on Robert Kelly's sage advice. No, I don't think we'll be an insurance company. I've run through pretty much all the questions I was going to run through. I don't know if you've got anything to add. Actually, one thing I want to it's very lucky being an insurance journalist, you get to learn a lot more about Greek mythology and Roman mythology than you would normally do because so many vehicles have been named after classical antiquity. And I know Rodian, this is post that epoch, isn't it? Well, so it's very late stages of the Roman Empire. So just tell us what that's all about. It's interesting when you start a business, you have these ideas of, oh, we're going to have this wonderful name. And then when you actually come and start... It's really hard, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. One, because unless you're a particularly creative person, which I'm not. And they've all been taken. And we have a, a COO, Tessa, who is from outside insurance, so brand marketing specialist, much more creative than insurance people like me. She was working with an external that we use to come up with this really strong website, which we've got on Rodian. Adrian and Tessa went on this journey and they found reference to that first, it's called the first sea law of roads. Effectively, when a vessel left port, there's three components to a vessel. There's the vessel owner, the cargo owner, and the passengers. If the vessel gets into distress, the absolute agreement was in, in order to save the vessel and the passengers, the cargo is jettisoned. And therefore, there's two sets of people who are very happy that that's happened, being the vessel owners and the, the passengers and the cargo owners need to be compensated. So all three, so the cargo owners take a little bit of the share, as do the vessel owners, as do the passengers. And so it was, it was called the first sea law of roads. And when we came across that, or when they came across that, it, it very quickly developed into a well, Rodian. Rodian is derived, obviously, from the, the word roads. It's the early average, isn't it? I suppose they're all in yeah, the same boat. Exactly. So the, the hull and the hull and the passengers um, bail so, out so the we, cargo because they like, were all sunk anyway, wouldn't they? Of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we. we <laughs> and the cargo was going to be lost one way or the other, either by yeah, the whole exactly. hull going down and all everyone dying. So you might as well chuck the cargo over and let the surviving passengers pay for it. Yeah, exactly. Providing the people who survive intact. Um, so you're all in the same boat still. at Rodian, is what we're saying. And that's Byzantine, isn't it? And of course, it is. Yeah. No, yeah exactly. I think a lot of people would still argue that the law of average in marine is still Byzantine. I think everyone would argue that the just marine insurance is still Byzantine. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so surely uh, you've got your marine MGAs being uh, ready just as we speak. You've got to have a marine MGA out of Australia, surely. You know, I don't, there will. Yeah. Well, there actually, the, actually, that, that does remind me. There's one other question I didn't ask you. Should we just think of you as an Australian business and? You are in a part of the world. There are other people in your time zone. There are other places. Could you be an international business? Obviously, there are plenty of international businesses run out of Australia, as we as we know. 
There are indeed. Well, on the doorstep, we obviously have New Zealand, which is a very strong insurance market and is represented by some good MGAs, not dissimilar to Australia in terms of setup, unified by language. So New Zealand is international and is very much a possibility in the future. And then we jump up into Singapore is starting to become a more friendly environment for underwriting agencies, as yeah. is some other Hong Kong and other territories up in what we call Asia. So it's possible. I wouldn't discount it, but I would say, yes, there is a definite ambition to look at those possibilities over time. But probably leave it out for the first five to 10 years. Yeah, I don't think we'll be rushing up into Singapore or Hong Kong, but you never say never, but no, that wouldn't be within the first five years. New Zealand, on the other hand, very much could be. Yeah. Well, Simon, I'll let you get on with your first five years. It sounds like you've bitten off an awful lot, but big smile on your face. So it looks like you're having a lot of fun. Yeah, we are, definitely. It's rewarding to be talking to people who are exploring a long-held ambition, invariably, to step out and do something themselves and partner with those people and give them the backing and the support they need. And I, I like that. It's a good feeling. We had that from Steadfast when we started our journey, so I'm looking to get a, a similar sort of feeling of venturing collectively, as we say. Yeah, it's fun working with young and ambitious and exciting people with good ideas, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of quite invigorating. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is. It, well, it reminds me of you know the days that we had in the market when it was that sort of spirit of endless possibilities, and I, I like that. I think that's what insurance should be about. And insurance generally is about that, isn't it? It's about exploring the new and what can we bring to market? What are the possibilities out there? And, and it's an industry that doesn't give itself enough credit for what it can bring to people, I think. Fantastic, Simon. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and we'll book you in for a checkup in a few years. Thank you very much, Mark. It's uh, lovely to see you again and to catch up and well done on your venture. It's a great service to the insurance industry. Oh, that's a very of... kind of you. You've got to keep yourself busy, keep yourself young and try and do different things. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>